Hello and welcome to the next in my series of studies in John's Gospel. When I became a Christian, I came across folks who are very anxious about the word works. And indeed, to this day, one still comes across that as as something that concerns people within Christianity. Why? What's the problem with the word works? Well, it's very clear in the New Testament that God loves us and that we don't need to earn that, that it's not by our actions that God decides whether we're lovable or not, and it's not by our works whether he decides whether we will get to heaven or not, that salvation has never intended to be by works, that we can't earn our place in God's affections, we can't earn our forgiveness. And that's important because for the stream of Christianity I became a Christian in and uh, for many there's an understanding that where we believe our faith is dependent on our works, in other words, through the religious actions that we do, that that's religion and not a relationship with God. And therefore, if we emphasize that we need to do things in order to be saved, in order to be loved, there's a problem. So that's the reason why in lots of minds of Christians, the word works is a negative word. Now that's a problem because Jesus talks very positively about works. He talks about him having works. He talks about his works speaking on his behalf. This is something that we're going to look at now and try and understand. The context of this is John chapter 10 where Jesus has been talking about being the good shepherd who lays down his life. He talks about having other sheep. He talks about freely choosing to lay down his life. And these uh, verses are all uh, uh, looked at in our previous talks. You can find them in our podcast or whatever if you haven't come to them already. But we're going to pick it up at verse 19 where we read these words. The Jews were divided. Uh, Many of them said he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? Now, that's been part of the debate throughout John's Gospel, this division between those who believed Jesus and those who thought he was demon-possessed. Then came the festival of dedication. So we're moving on probably some months This is uh, quite a distance away. The dedication festival is not something that we find in the Old Testament. It's to do with something that happened between the Old and the New Testament. If you know your history, or you can Google it, that there was a time when the Greek Empire had taken over and occupied Jerusalem, and they required that people worship Zeus on in every temple, in every altar, in every other religion. And that obviously was considered a huge blasphemy. And a guy called Judas Maccabees led a revolt against this and it was overturned. And so the temple in Jerusalem did not have to worship Zeus but continued to worship Yahweh. And they rededicated the temple. And this festival that Jesus is at commemorates this occasion. And it was winter, John tells us. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it was snowing, but certainly it just means it was a little bit colder. Not quite sure of the significance of this except to say although we're going to go back to a similar subject as the last few verses, this is some time later. And it's important to realize that the New Testament writers collect different moments in Jesus' life thematically and they put them together because that tells us something about Jesus. But it isn't necessarily the next moment. So, 
Verse 24, the Jews were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, we may think that's a pretty uh, reasonable request. They're trying to work out who Jesus is. Is he really the anointed servant of God to come and rescue Israel? Is he the Messiah? And Jesus says in verse 25, I did tell you, but you did not believe. And then he says, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me. Why is he talking about works and not words? And what works is he talking about? Well, let's answer that first question first. And just looking at the way uh, John himself explains things. The first thing to say is, in answer to the question, what works, is that there is a moment when Jesus does say he is the Messiah. And that's interesting because he doesn't say it to the Jews. He doesn't say it to men. He says it to someone who is not going to be listened to. He says it to the woman at the world. She says, uh, um, I've heard about the Messiah. And Jesus declared, this is John 4, 26, I am the one speaking to you. I am he. So there is a moment when Jesus says quite plainly, he is the Messiah. But he doesn't say it to the people that everybody else would listen to. He doesn't say it to leadership. He doesn't say it to men. He says it to an outcast. He says it to a woman. He says it to a person from a different stream of faith. But in the main then, he is saying, you judge me by my actions. And I'm going to come back to why he tells the woman, but he won't tell them plainly. Let's first look at the actions. Just simply looking at John first. There is the, the encounter with John the Baptist. There is the baptism of John, where John says, Behold the Lamb of God. John, who they followed, um, who has uh, been preparing the way, was taking on the Elijah role. He points to Jesus and says he is the Lamb of God. He tells his disciples to follow him. So they know about John and they know about his testimony. There is the moment which they may not have known about because it was at a private function where he turns water into wine, which was a deeply symbolic act, wine being the symbol of joy and of the, the kingdom of God and of heaven. But what they did know and had seen was the cleansing of the temple, where he takes authority in the temple above the priests and he claims the temple to be his, his own and his father's house. And he drives out those who are creating a barrier between the ordinary people and God. And that was very much a messianic act and they had seen that happen. They had seen a number of healings, and three in particular that revealed Jesus as being significant. His power to do things on the Sabbath and his declaration that the Sabbath was not as important as uh, doing uh, as acts of compassion and care for people who were suffering. And those healings had been dramatic and had caused them to believe, many people to believe, but not these folks who were arguing. They had seen him feed the 5,000 and building on the story from the Old Testament of God providing bread. Here was Jesus providing bread and food and miraculously feeding the crowd and declaring himself to be the, the bread of life. They had seen him uh, forgive 
the women, not only the woman at the well, who we talked about a moment ago, but also the woman caught in adultery. They'd seen his authority. They'd seen the way he interacted with people. And he had said things to them that were not plain, but were in some sense coded. He had said things like, I am the bread of life. I am the manna. I am what you need more than anything else. This is language that they might have expected from the Messiah. He had said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He's not a prophet because he's not pointing people to God. He's claiming that people need to react and interact with him. He's taking on a messianic role. Then perhaps incredibly startlingly, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. He's using I am, the, the reference and the language and the, the, the title that's close to how God is called, Yahweh, I am who I am. But he's saying, I am eternal. Before Abraham was, I am. So these are all things that he said um, that would imply that he was the Messiah, that he was divine. And finally, what we've just looked at in previous verses in this chapter, he says that he is the good shepherd. Remember that David says, the Lord is my shepherd. So when somebody says, I am the shepherd, the good shepherd is referred to in Ezekiel. We looked at all of these in previous talks. You'll know that he was saying, I am God. So he's done enough for us to understand and interpret him as the Messiah. So why doesn't he say it with explicit words? Well, it's easy to say, I am the Messiah. And there were many people in those days who claimed to be the Messiah. That was easy to do. What Jesus does is much harder in that he acts it out supernaturally, miraculously, beyond dispute. He does the things that only the Messiah can do. I love this quote. Living without speaking is better than speaking without living. For a person who lives rightly helps us by silence, while one who talks too much merely annoys us. Isn't that great? Living without speaking is better than speaking without living. For a person who lives rightly helps us by silence, while one who talks too much merely annoys us. Now, the second reason that Jesus doesn't say in words of one syllable plainly that he is the Messiah is to do with expectations. Because the word Messiah was loaded. They had strong expectations of what the Messiah would do. And Jesus wanted to confound and change those expectations through his actions. So we need to just have a look for a moment at their expectations and compare that with the actuality, what Jesus really meant. Now we can find the clues to this in the Old Testament. It's not that Jesus is changing what the Messiah was meant to be. But the point was that by the time of Jesus' arrival, they had built up an impression of what the Messiah was meant to be that wasn't actually what was intended from the Old Testament. You see, they understood the Messiah would come and save them from oppression. And they had interpreted that as the political and physical oppression caused by whatever empire was over, uh, ruling over them. At this moment, the Roman Empire. Whereas actually the Messiah had come and was coming to save not from the oppression in the physical, but to save from eternal destruction. And what Jesus says again and again in John is that he's come to bring eternal life. That it's not about simply kicking out the Romans and everything being fine today. 
that it was about restoring the relationship with God and dealing with the things that have drived a wedge and alienation between us and God. But because of their expectation, they believed the Messiah would be violent. He would physically overthrow and through war and uh, through destruction would remove those uh, oppressing invaders. Whereas Jesus is one who is bringing mercy and love. He's acting with compassion. That's the significance of the way in which he deals with a woman caught in adultery. Their expectation of the Messiah was that he would deal with sin by punishing it and that he would be the first to throw the stone. But Jesus is actually saying the Messiah has come to save from condemnation, not to enact condemnation. Their view of the Messiah was nationalistic and exclusive. It was about saving their own particular race. But when Jesus is meeting with the woman at the well, remember, he, she is the one person that he says, I am the Messiah to. She was expected not to be saved by the Messiah because she was a Samaritan. She was excluded in the expectations of the people listening to Jesus. And Jesus is turning upside down this idea that the Messiah was only for the people of Judah. The Messiah was for all nations and for all people. And so Jesus was not going to say plainly, I am the Messiah, whilst it, if that was the risk of that being reduced down to as just being for the people of Judah, it was for all people. And linked to that then was the expectation that the Messiah would have political power, that he would reign in an earthly fashion. Whereas what Jesus comes to talk about is a kingdom that is within the heart, that is not about obeying government, but is about obeying God internally in the way we live our lives. The kingdom of God was not geographical. And that's really important. In fact, that's pretty still important today, unfortunately, in today's understanding of the Middle East. The kingdom of God is not geographical. It's about being a reigning in the heart. And if we go back to the next verses in John's gospel, we'll take it just a little bit further. He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now, some people would say that they don't believe because Jesus had created them not to believe or because they weren't allowed to believe. That's not my understanding of, my, of this passage. My understanding of the passage is that they don't believe because they will not accept Jesus as the good shepherd. In other words, they are not willing to listen to his voice. It's not that they're incapable of, of listening to his voice. It's that they are choosing not to hear. They're choosing not to believe in him as the good shepherd. They're choosing not to believe in him as the one who welcomes the excluded, who welcomes the Samaritan, who forgives the woman caught in adultery. They are choosing not to believe that he is the one who can transform lives. And they are choosing not to follow him, not to copy him, not to engage and believe in that way of life. So they are choosing and rejecting something of the shepherd. They are rejecting mercy. It's their choice. They don't want a Messiah who forgives the sinner. They are rejecting love. They don't want a Messiah who heals on the Sabbath. They don't want a Messiah who breaks the law in order to act out compassion. They don't want a Messiah who is inclusive, who welcomes the, good Samar the Samaritans and those who are Gentiles. They don't want a Messiah whose kingdom 
is not political, but is in the heart. And so Jesus doesn't, uh, he's coming to them, but they're rejecting him. Why doesn't he speak plainly? Because he wants them to think through this expectation. He wants them to understand what the Messiah means. And so he acts it out first before accepting that he is the Messiah. Later we'll read of him entering into Jerusalem and then laying down the palm leaves and then accepting and declaring him as the Messiah. But even then, they've got the wrong understanding of what the Messiah is. He wants them to have the right understanding. So rather than just say words that they will then latch onto and not delve into what they mean, he shocks them by behaving differently. So what? What does this mean for you and I as we draw to a close? Well, I want to ask this question. Do our actions speak of Jesus more than our words? Because we're living with people who've got wrong expectations of religion, wrong assumptions about Jesus. And our words probably won't change those assumptions. It's our actions that will change. See, our works are not about loving God. I said that from the beginning. God loves me irrespective of my works. But my works are about changing other people's perception of God. And that matters the highest and most beautiful things in life are not to be heard about. This is what Kierkegaard says. They are not to be heard about. They are not to be read about. They are not seen, but if one will, they are to be lived. How do we live out our relationship and faith in the Messiah? How do we follow Jesus? Remember, the sheep follow the shepherd. We copy. How do we copy Jesus? So what actions speak of God and speak of Jesus? Where are we acting out mercy, not condemnation? We may speak mercy, but we have to act it out. Where in the workplace, where in the family, do we not reject those who have made foolish mistakes, those who do things that are not what God wants? Where do we not throw condemnation, throw stones? Where do we model Grace, where do we act out mercy? Where are we encountering the woman caught in the act of adultery? And rather than throw the first stone, we say, neither do I condemn you. And where are we acting out love rather than hatred, rather than keeping to rules, rather than walking by on the other side of the road? Where do we act out the shepherd who binds up and seeks and searches for the lost sheep, the one sheep that's gone astray? Where are we following the shepherd who cares deeply for those who are lost? Where are we acting out love? Because religion and the assumption for many people about religion is that it's about hatred, that it's about aggression, that it's about pushing people away. There is an assumption, even when we say we're a Christian, particularly if we dare to say we're an evangelical Christian, there is an assumption in the world's eyes that is not what Jesus is about. And our words won't change that, act, that assumption. We have to act it out. Where are we acting out inclusion, not judgment? Where are we welcoming the Samaritan? Where are we welcoming the people who others think should be on the outside, the people who are different to us? Different gender, different race, different 
uh, religion, different age, where are we including people who otherwise would think that the religion excludes them? And where are we enacting and being part of the healing of illness and hurt and damage? Where are we praying for the miraculous rather than walking by apathetically? Where are we involved in seeking God, transform and redeem and restore situations? Where are we praying for people? And where in our lives are we acting out heart obedience rather than rule keeping? One of the ancient fathers says these words, if you have a chest full of clothing and leave it for a long time, the clothing will rot inside of it. It is the same with the thoughts in our heart. If we do not carry them out by physical action, after a long while, they will spoil and turn bad. Early on in my Christian life, I was terrified of good works. I've now discovered, Ephesians tells me, that I was created for good works. Jesus says that people are to judge him by his works. My actions speak, I hope, of Jesus or of my own self-centeredness. I want them to speak of Jesus. So our question for reflection is, do my actions challenge the perceptions others have of Jesus or religion? Where, am I, where is my behavior challenging what people thought? Let's pray. Lord, we offer our lives to you and ask that you would take what we do day by day at work, amongst our family, with our friends, in the community. Wherever we are, we ask that you would take those, those behaviors and allow them to speak of you more loudly than our words ever could. Help us to be merciful. Help us to be inclusive. Help us to be transforming. Help us to be involved in the miraculous. Help us to let you reign in our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.